Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Facing Up to Justice by Edward Smith Christians need to be ready for the inevitable moment when Lucy Letby declares that she's found Jesus in prison. So read one of many tens of thousands of tweets posted on the day Letby was sentenced to spend the rest of her natural life behind bars. I probably saw several hundred of those tweets that day, yet this one has lingered, kneeling away at me whenever my mind is drawn back to a consideration of the appalling facts of a case that surely takes its place amongst the worst ever to have been prosecuted in this country. One of the things about the Letby trial which has caused the most consternation has been her refusal to appear in court for some of the verdicts and for her sentencing hearing. The strength and volume of the response to what is being almost universally termed her cowardice has some challenging things to say about what contemporary society means, or thinks it means, when it talks of justice. And as I write, the government's response has been to force criminals to appear. An interrogation of these responses might just help us all begin to be able to think through where this leaves us too. The sense seems to be that in refusing to enter the dock at Manchester Crown Court for her sentencing... Letby has somehow evaded what we might term her just deserts, and that her victims and their families, and indeed society, have been cheated out of some of the justice to which they feel entitled. If the fact of receiving the sentence is viewed as itself part of the punishment, not an assumption by which I am wholly persuaded, but one which sits at the heart of this argument, then the outrage caused by Letby's avoidance of her sentencing speaks to a certain waiting of the importance of that one morning in court, as against the next 40 or even 50 years Letby will spend in prison. What this boils down to, then, is retribution, pure and simple. We think offenders should be made to listen to the impact of their offending, because we want them to feel all the things that we believe they deserve. Guilt, shame and pain. We want this because of some innate deep-rooted sense of balance and fairness, which dictates that an appropriate response to the imposition of pain is, in turn, the imposition of pain. Our legal system exists, in part, to ensure that this remains proportionate. The state censures offenders to avoid the inevitable disproportionate vigilante or retaliatory action which would otherwise ensue, exercising what some criminologists refer to as its displacement function. Prisons, of course, are out of sight and usually out of mind, which perhaps explains the importance of the sentencing hearing in cases like this. It is the only opportunity we have to see the convicted person suffer, and we need to see it with our own eyes to make sure that even if we think prison is too good, i.e. insufficiently painful, we have at least seen the convicted person suffer some pain. For Christians, though, the elephant in the room is that Letby has been sentenced to a whole life order. In passing that sentence, 
the state is saying we have no interest in your rehabilitation. And that is something which should give all pause for thought, especially Christians. I do not think there is a correct Christian response to this issue as it happens. Personally, I would rather we didn't have whole life orders, but equally I have no objection to someone spending the rest of their life in prison if that is the only safe course of action. If we were designing a Christian system of criminal justice, then whole life orders would be indefensible on the grounds that we have no right to make redemption impossible. But we're not designing or operating under a Christian system of criminal justice, and redemption in the theological sense is still possible in prison. I struggle, particularly in the light of cases like this one, to get too worked up about it. But perhaps that's the point. Perhaps the fact that my own theology opposes whole life orders, but when exposed to the facts of a case like Letby's, I find it difficult to care very much, is exactly the kind of confusion and contradiction of which I spoke at the outset of this article. And in that confusion and contradiction, perhaps we find what it is to be a Christian. Our instinctive and culturally conditioned human responses coming up against the teaching of the ultimate countercultural being, and so often overwhelming it in our hearts. Those hearts ache for the victims of Lucy Letby and their families. Have they received justice? She will spend the rest of her life in prison. I think they have. Is that justice compromised because she did not appear for her sentencing? I think it is not on both secular and Christian grounds. Secularly speaking, the state has performed its displacement function and the punishment is being carried out whether she was there to hear it or not. The victims have, for better or worse, been removed from the conversation, which is why criminal cases are listed as the king versus, rather than victims' names versus. Theologically speaking, Letby may have avoided being deluged by the waters of justice rolling down upon her, as justice is described in the Bible, in the dock. But we should be in no doubt that those waters are rising from the floor of her prison cell as we speak, and she will be soaked through soon enough. The case of Lucy Letby, as with any case of great evil, is a violent challenge. For the Christian... It is one which can only be met with prayer, thought and introspection. In short, they must pray their way to their own response. Whilst they are doing that as Christians in an increasingly secular world, a world where the responses that they know their faith obliges them to make are so quickly and easily monstered, I can only hope that they and we find in our church an institution willing to preach that countercultural unpopular gospel. A quote from Pope John Paul II. Modern man often anxiously wonders about the solution to the terrible tensions which have built up in the world and which entangle humanity. And if at times he lacks the courage to utter the word mercy, or if in his conscience empty of religious content he does not find the equivalent, so much greater is the need for the church to utter this word, not only in her own name, but also in the name of all the men and women of her time.
Sloth's Languid Lack of Passion by Graham Tomlin Sloth is the most perplexing of the seven deadly sins and the one that is hardest to define. Most people would probably think first of laziness when they think of sloth. On the other hand, sloth is often related to the older Latin idea of axidy, which is sometimes translated to spiritual weariness or despair. But these two definitions indicate the problem we have with sloth. If it is just sheer laziness, it might be considered as a slight moral failing, but most of us would hardly classify a little idleness as one of the great threats to human life. Sleeping in just a little longer in the morning hardly promises to bring Western civilization to its knees. On the other hand, if it is defined as despair, that sounds very close to depression, and we know that depression is usually an illness that afflicts some people without their choosing. It is not a freely chosen pattern of life, an act of disobedience to God or anyone else. By this understanding, sloth hardly counts as a sin either. Sloth is either too trivial to worry about or too involuntary to blame. Clinical depression is an illness that can hit people for no apparent reason and for no fault of their own. The symptoms are similar, but it is important to distinguish depression from sloth. Depression can be caused by genetics, a traumatic event, or the misuse of drugs. Sloth is not depression. It is another form of despair that starts with small things, a deliberate chosen shrug of the shoulders, a turning away from someone in need, a switching off of something in the heart. Sometimes it can be caused by disillusionment with life, but it sets in a pattern of allowing yourself to drift towards a languid, couldn't-be-bothered approach that in time becomes a habit of life. Once sloth or spiritual weariness gets hold of you, it's hard to shake it off and it can lead to disaster. Sloth is essentially a giving up on life. It leads to finding no pleasure in it, a dull, steady torpor that expects nothing new, nothing exciting, nothing worth getting out of bed for. Dorothy Sayers wrote of sloth, It is not merely idleness of mind and laziness of body. It is that whole poisoning of the will which, beginning with indifference and an attitude of I couldn't care less, extends to the deliberate refusal of joy and culminates in morbid introspection and despair. Our culture is the most overstimulated in history. Only a generation or two ago, children had to make do with a football, a doll, a game or two, and a few friends. Then black-and-white computer ping-pong was born, closely followed by Space Invaders, and we all thought the ultimate in entertainment had arrived. We were never to be bored again. Those games look like the Stone Age now, yet with the arrival of unlimited information at the click of a mouse, games with graphics enabling you to fly the world, fight the Second World War, and create your own civilization, have we eradicated sloth or boredom? If anything, we have increased it. Peter Kreeft comments, How do we explain the irony that the very society which for the first time has conquered nature by technology and turned the world into a giant fun and games factory, a rich kid's playroom, the very society which has the least reason to be bored is the most bored? The problem is 
that however intricate the technology, however scintillating the entertainment, it soon gets superseded by something else. Hence, it's hardly surprising when we turn our noses up at the triumphs of yesterday, as we have something better today. And when we even get disillusioned with today's wonders, knowing they will soon be consigned to history as well. But to dig a little deeper into the origins of sloth, Thomas Aquinas described it as sadness and abhorrence or boredom regarding a spiritual and divine good. He refers to what happens when through numerous small choices and turning points, a person becomes incapable of being stimulated by anything good or beautiful or wise. Or worse, when goodness, beauty or wisdom evoke a response of disgust or a cynical smirk. When we lose the passion for life, goodness, laughter and joy, then it might be a sign that sloth has fixed its grip upon us. It happens when there is nothing left, outside ourselves, to really believe in. Looking at the other sins, we might be forgiven for thinking that they are a long list of restrictions, a denial of some of the fun things in life, a restriction on our pleasure-seeking, a dampener on passion. It is the inclusion of sloth on the list that gives the lie to this once and for all. Sloth is precisely a lack of passion, a settled laziness that, for whatever reason, fails to get worked up about poverty or cruelty or the threat to life on Earth through climate emergency. It is a dullness that fails to wonder at green rolling hills, brooding mountains, an act of sheer unexpected kindness, the birth of a baby. Botticelli, Mozart or Taylor Swift, take your pick from the last three or add more. Beauty is naturally subject to taste. It is the spirit that reacts to cruelty, injustice and pain by shrugging the shoulders and switching the channel. Christianity encourages a passion for life and all that is good and beautiful. That is why it is fundamentally opposed to sloth and puts it firmly on the list of habits to be shunned at all costs. According to the Christian account of life, we are beings created with a capacity for immense joy, passion, wonder, inquisitiveness and emotion. The world was created as an arena for all this enchantment. It was made so that we might regularly sit back in amazement at the fact that we get to live this life, this physical, spiritual life on this planet that is our home, a place of sheer beauty, the majesty of a lion, the speed of a hummingbird, the taste of pure water. We were intended to take delight in such things, to explore them and enjoy them. Yet most of all, we were intended to delight in their creator, the author of all this goodness, the one from whom they and we all come, the most beautiful and desirable one of all. In his great autobiographical reflection entitled Confessions, St. Augustine says of the human race, they choose to look for happiness not in you, but in what you have created. Now, Augustine himself was never quite sure whether taking pleasure in created things was a good idea or not. However, he did at least make this one point supremely well, that our ultimate joy was to be found in God. 
The joy we find in sunsets, friends and apple tart, are tasters, anticipations, to give us a taste for the very best, which is God himself. And conversely, when we lose our taste for God, we are likely sooner or later to lose our taste for other good things, or even to develop a taste for things that are bad for us, like hallucinogenic drugs, or the thrill of theft, or even cruelty that try to imitate the ecstasy of a close connection with God. I remember my first taste of Guinness. The dark, swirling Irish drink had always had a fascination for me growing up. And I remember the first time I plucked up courage to look older than my age and bought a can in the local store to give it a try. It was foul. I hated it. It tasted sour, bitter and unpleasant. It didn't help that it was a hot summer's day and the beer was warm, but that didn't matter. It was the kind of experience that might have made me never touch the stuff again. It wasn't until later on, a few years older, after a bit of perseverance, that I began to appreciate the hidden flavours, the rich, full, wheaty taste. I learnt that just because it didn't taste like lemonade did not necessarily mean that it was bad. As I learnt to appreciate and enjoy it, Guinness soon became a favourite drink, something I would choose above all others. If it doesn't sound too irreverent, for many people it is a bit like that with God. The idea of enjoying God is about as appealing as that sip of Guinness was for me age 16. Yet in time, we can learn to appreciate things that have a deeper richness, a more profound taste. Guinness is a trivial example, but the same can be true of God. An acquired taste can take a while to come, but when it comes, it is the richest of all. The great past masters of the Christian way advise us that the surest way to combat sloth, the turning away from all that gives life, is to cultivate not just a zest for life, but an unlikely but deeply satisfying desire for the one who gave the gift of life in the first place. Seeing Slowly Takes Time by Alex Hughes Over the past few months, the Museum of Modern Art in New York hosted a gorgeous exhibition devoted to the work of Georgia O'Keeffe. The exhibition's title to see takes time, comes from an account O'Keefe gave of her creative impulse. Nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small, we haven't time. And to see takes time, like to have a friend takes time. If I could paint the flower exactly as I see it, no one would see what I see, because I would paint it small, like the flower is small. So I said to myself, I'll paint what I see what the flower is to me, but I'll paint it big and they will be surprised into taking time to look at it. Despite O'Keeffe's hopes, studies have shown that the average attention visitors give to gallery exhibits is between 15 and 30 seconds. Veteran art dealer Michael Findlay laments this attention deficit and urges the discipline of seeing slowly. Findlay argues that the best way to look at art is to strip away much of what we think we know, or have been taught to think about it, and then give time 
to our eyes to search and absorb what they can see, and to our hearts and minds to experience and assimilate its effect. This parallels O'Keefe's process of patient looking, returning to the same subject again and again, to discern and refine whatever qualities seem most significant and worthy of depiction. It isn't necessary to enumerate the contemporary contextual pressures and tendencies that militate against seeing slowly. Suffice to say that we are immersed in a culture of immediacy, which expects the payoff from any investment to be quick and obvious. Not only does this affect our ability to appreciate art, but it also goes against much spiritual wisdom from the world's religious traditions. Certainly the Christian tradition of prayer would agree that to see spiritually takes time. Like to have a friend in God takes time. All seeing is a matter of relationship, as John Berger wrote in a groundbreaking study of visual art. We never look at just one thing. We are always looking at the relation between things and ourselves. Berger was particularly concerned about the way in which the male gaze views the female form an insight of enduring, urgent importance, which can be broadened to highlight the different characters of relational looking. In this regard, Martin Buber made a helpful distinction between an I-it mode of seeing, in which individuals treat others as objects, reducing them to mere things or instruments for their own purposes, and an I-thou mode wherein people engage with each other as unique and sacred beings, recognising the other's inherent worth and treating them with reverence and respect. Simone Weil offered an allied perspective on the dignifying quality of a certain kind of seeing. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity, and went on further. Attention, taken to its highest degree, is the same thing as prayer. It presupposes faith and love. Absolutely unmixed attention is prayer. Vile's writing is rich and seminal, but also somewhat gnomic. What are the faith and love implied by attention? And how do they link to prayer? She doesn't spell this out, but we might take a cue from Berger's observation that we only see what we look at. To look is an act of choice. Choosing to look at one thing rather than another is part of the generosity of attention. Of course, people may choose to look at anything, for any number of reasons, but the kind of slow seeing advised by O'Keefe and Findlay seems to presuppose a valorization, a decision or intuition that the subject in view is worth giving time to. There is a determination in this kind of seeing to seek the kind of presence that gives space for a true and authentic encounter, an I-thou connection. The fulfilment of this hope cannot be known in advance, so it is like an act of faith, and the impulse seems much like the desire of a lover. In a discussion of the detailed painting of some flowers, which are a very minor element of a much larger canvas, Alain de Botton remarks on the artist's great care and devotion to the depiction of every detail, as if he asked each flower, what is your unique character? I want to know you as you really are. For Botton, this attitude towards a flower is moving because it rehearses in a minor but vivid way 
kind of attention that we long to receive from and which we hope to be able to give to another human being. Though de Botton is avowedly not religious, his account of a human longing for attention, which others have elucidated in terms of a dignifying and deeply satisfying form of connection, resonates with what is often said by people of prayer. There are different forms of Christian prayer, patterns of speaking to God in words of praise, confession, petition and thanksgiving are fairly well known. But there are also practices that respond to the biblical summons. Wait for the Lord and he shall comfort your heart. Be still and know that I am God. These Christian practices overlap with the meditative and contemplative traditions of other religions and also feed into the emerging a religious exercise of mindfulness. It would be false to say that the aims and ends of different traditions are identical, but they offer a collective invitation to try a different way of seeing. A way of seeing that can help us to transcend the I-it perspective, characterised by a sense of detachment and a focus on utility, a move towards the cultivation of meaningful, mutual connections, and a sense of interconnectedness with the world and with other people, and perhaps with God too. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.